Two and a Half Admins, episode 135. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary Clara plug, Alan, is part of your FreeBSD history series, Understanding the Origins of Dtrace. Yeah, so this covers why Dtrace was invented and how that changed tracing and provides a bunch of the background there. And also, at the bottom, I have a whole bunch of examples of interesting things you can do with Dtrace. So things you can find out, you know, why is this doing that, or or why is the system slow, or just what's happening on a machine. And it really helps explain why people make such a big deal about this kind of tracing. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. It's been 10 years since Google shut down Reader. You know, this is one of those things that everybody gets all up in their feelings about, and I'm just kind of left out in the cold because I never was a Google Reader person. I actually used LiveJournal as an RSS reader back in the day that uh, Google Reader was in its glory days. I I never actually used Google Reader once, so I'm one of the few people that it shut down just had no real impact on. Well, it's funny. I thought that I wasn't impacted by it, and I remember hearing all the furore at the time about it, and then suddenly I realized that my podcasts weren't updating in Google Listen, which it turns out they'd killed about a year earlier. I hadn't realized it had still kept working until they killed Reader, which was the back end for that, the RSS part of that. And so I just wasn't getting any new podcast episodes. And I was like, oh, right. So this did affect me then. And for me, I had the Google homepage thing. So instead of just the search box, it would have a bunch of boxes where like pulling in RSS feeds from I guess it was Slashdot and XKCD and a couple other things to make my homepage before, you know, browsers had something else interesting on the default empty tab. And so, I, yeah, I never really used Reader, but they killed the thing I used as well. And then I used some other website that tried to keep kind of the same thing going and providing the RSS Reader, but it just was never the same. Now, I use Feedly for that purpose now. Feedly.com is a, a pretty good RSS-like. Yeah, I use Feedly with the FeedMe app, which uh, ties into that. I mean, a bunch of apps will tie into Feedly. And I haven't found one for my iPad that ties in nicely and doesn't cost a bunch of money. So if anyone's got a suggestion, then uh, show at 2.5admins.com. But Killed by Google came along after this, and now nobody trusts anything that Google does. We'll stick around. Look at Stadia. That failed because of a self-fulfilling prophecy, arguably. People didn't expect it to stick around, so didn't invest in it. And now it's totally gone away. I mean, I think even a, a week or so ago, I read that the white label service that they had tried to turn it into has finally been shut down. Stadia is like officially, officially dead now. And that was no surprise to anyone. And Google Reader was the first thing that let us know Google were going to do this sort of thing. I think we're kind of at a point now where an awful lot of people quite reasonably look at Google products with the same sort of skepticism that people applied to shareware back in the 90s. They're like, oh, yeah, sure, it looks fine now, but, you know, how do I know somebody's going to be around to take care of this thing? It's just going to evaporate out from underneath me because there's not a real company committed to supporting it. But then you look at something like Gmail and Docs, where they are clearly making money. Oh, yeah, no, let, let me go ahead and interrupt you here. Yes, let's absolutely look at Gmail Gmail has supposedly offered Outlook integration via a plugin since its inception, and it has never worked right. How many years has, has what is now Google Workspaces been a thing? It's been renamed at least three different times, but it's always been the same product, whether you call it Google Workspace or Google Drive or Gmail or G Suite, God help you. It was Google Apps at first. 
right? Because Google Apps, and then you could have Google Apps for your domain. Mm-hmm. Google Apps for business, I think, at one point, then yeah. G Suite, then Workspace. I struggled to keep up, yeah. But, but the point here is that an enormous percentage of the potential customers for this product, they use Outlook as a mail client, and they absolutely have no interest in moving away from Outlook. They are like terrified, white-knuckle gripped onto Outlook as the thing that they have to have in their lives. I know this because I hate Outlook and I have to support these folks. And I very confidently recommended in Google Workspace or Google Apps for Business or whatever the hell they called it, you know, back in the day when it first launched, when I saw that there was an Outlook plugin. I'm like, well, and Google's making it, so of course it will be fine. And at first it seemed fine, but pretty quickly you start discovering that, you know, if you've got folks that have you know, a decade plus of email and like a lot of folders and there's, you know, 20, 30 gigabytes of it. The client sucks. They never really wanted to support Outlook clearly and they put absolutely no work into making it actually usable. Still haven't. But problems with it aside, the idea that Gmail will just disappear or that Drive will just disappear or Docs will just disappear and be shut down, that is not a worry that I have necessarily because it is making money it's the same with YouTube, right? They're not just going to shut YouTube down. Well, in particular, the difference is there, like Gmail makes money even if you don't pay for it. Whereas Reader, I think they were like, we're not seeing how we're making money off this if we're not, I guess, inserting ads in your RSS feed. Which they could have done. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't. But it's eroded trust mm-hmm. in anything new they do. Anything established that is making money for them, I think people generally don't have an issue with and, and don't have a lack of confidence in. This was the start of Google's eventual demise, I think, because it really woke people up to the idea that Google will just kill stuff. And we ended up with things like Killed by Google and the meme now and the Stadia example. Wave. Buzz. G Plus or whatever it was called, the social network. Yeah, Google Plus. Yeah, exactly. But the point I'm making here is that how can Google do anything new without people just laughing at it and dooming it to failure before it's even started. Well, step one, you spin off a parent company and you call it Alphabet. And then when you release things, you release it under Alphabet, but you don't specifically say Google to avoid the bad PR that you've given yourself from a decade of doing exactly what we've just been complaining about. But then you can't advertise it on the Google homepage easily. Jim's point is they probably should have always done the science experiments under Alphabet and only adopt a product as a Google product once it's definitely here for good. Yeah, at this point, they've jumped off a cliff. They're halfway to the bottom and asking how not to fall. Part of it was, I think we just applied a magic standard to Google. It's like, how about every service that's free on the internet? You ask, what if this goes away? Because mm-hmm. what if it goes away? And, you know, the same thing with Jim and I warn all the time about any kind of backup or other service that says, oh, you can use as much as you want and we're not going to charge you extra. It's like if you're not paying per gigabyte, then at some point they're going to have to come back and say, here's a limit on the amount of data before you have to pay extra or they're going to go out of business. And you don't want to be caught on the wrong side of that. Or at least if they have a clear fair usage policy, they might say it's unlimited asterisk and then that's like 300 gigabytes a month or whatever it is. Right. Well, if there's a number, then sure. If it's whatever is fair, that number will change all the time and Mm -hmm. that's not helping you know whether you're on the good side or the bad side of it. For those of you who are not either Larry Niven or Robert Heinlein fans, the acronym here is Tonstoffel. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. We had an episode called that once, I think. I think it was specifically talking about 
one of these cases where they retroactively change the limit to be much lower. So I agree with you about all the bits of Google. I'm just saying same thing probably applies to most startups or anything that's available for free to people. Because as, as we all know, you know, if you're not paying for the service, you're the product. Yeah, look at the business model and ask yourself, is this sustainable long term or is this just going to die? Or, you know, in the case of Google, was, was this just some engineer science experiment and Google let them run with it and tried it out to see, can we find a business model for this? And it turns out, no, so we killed it. Product first, business model later. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to leno.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's leno.com slash 25A. Samsung's moon photos are fake, but so is a lot of mobile photography. This is an article on The Verge. This kind of blew up over the last week or so. And I'd heard about this, I swear, last year even. The idea that with a Samsung phone, you open the camera, you point it at the moon, zoom in, and it then looks suspiciously good quality because it's basically been swapped out for an existing photo of the moon because that's the good thing about the moon. It never changes. It always looks the same no matter where you are on the Earth. Let's back up for a second from the moon itself and talk about that headline. Samsung's moon photos are fake, but so is a lot of mobile photography. I have an issue with that headline because it says a lot of mobile photography. <laughs> no, all mobile photography is effectively fake because it is all increasingly AI filtered to make it look good. Well, to be fair, Jim, to be fair, if you're failing and running Lineage without the Google apps and having to rely on Lineage's camera, then that isn't fake. That looks shit, but is genuinely <laughs> what goes into the lens. Okay, if you're a normal person running a actual consumer accessible <laughs> yes. mobile operating system, I don't care if it's Android, which Android vendor, or if it's you know Apple and iOS, increasingly there's more and more automatic AI effects applied to the raw sensor data. We're not talking about like an Instagram type deal where you choose and select a filter after the fact to apply to get a look specifically that you want, but you have access to an original. We're talking about it being AI modified before it ever gets to you to then think about applying your own cosmetic filters on top of it. Well, if you take a photo with the Pixel 7 that I've got, for example, you see the raw photo and then it changes before your very eyes. It takes like a second or so, and you see it just changed from this like grainy, terrible photo to this sharp AI-ified photo. And the, the term for this, I believe, is computational photography. They take a bunch of different shots at different exposures, combine them, use a bit of AI. One technique, yes, is to take several exposures and look for the least blurry bits amongst those exposures to stitch together using AI routines. That one's particularly useful if you've got a family with small children, 
you're never going to get two small kids to both look at the camera and not move and have a decent facial expression at the same time. You can take a lot of the pain out of that with the technique that we're describing, because if they're both kind of twitchy and wiggly or whatever, and you have a split second where one of them isn't blurry because they're not moving in that fractional second. And the next fractional second later, the other one isn't blurry because they're not wiggling. Your phone will automatically stitch those two together so that you get a non-blurry image of both kids. That technique works for a lot of blur mitigation or reduction, but it's not the only automatically applied AI effect. And I've particularly noticed since my Pixel 6 Pro With all my pixels, I've seen an increase in the amount of these effects that get applied automatically over the years. It's gotten to the point where basically every picture I take, I'm looking at, you know, the outlines of like somebody's hair against a background. And I'm like, I can see, okay, this has been enhanced to make a sharper boundary in between this person and the background behind them. And it looks good. It quote pops, unquote, but it's not reality. And now here's the thing. If you want a good looking picture of you or your wife or your kids or your dog or whatever, this is all fine and dandy. You're you're probably not going to want the data before the AI techniques are applied. But if this is a photo that needs to document actual reality, now you're starting to have issues because you're not actually documenting reality as it came back from the sensors, what you're doing is you're looking at something that would look appealing to a human artistically. Now we can move forward and talk about these moon pictures, specifically with Samsung. It's taken a step further because now we're not just talking about generic AI techniques to stitch together the best parts of two images that were automatically taken a hundredth of a second apart. We're not talking about a generic AI filter that will look for pixelated curves, something like that, and, you know, do something to smooth those edges. That can still be problematic, but at least it's relatively generic. What's different here is Samsung software knows what the moon looks like. And if it sees the moon in your photo, but it thinks it's not a good looking (laughs) version of the moon, it will take its own knowledge of what the moon should look like and correct it so that it will look like the moon. But let's say, for example, you're out in your backyard and, uh, you know, you're you're a few homemade brown jugs with XXX on the side deep in the moonshine and you see the little green men go flying by and you whip out your trusty phone and you take a picture. Well, if they happen to be in front of the moon and your phone is a Samsung, you don't know that the little green men aren't going to get edited out because Samsung's app knows what the moon looks like and it doesn't have a UFO in front of it. It's a little far flung, but like this is exactly the kind of issue we're talking about. The photography is ceasing to be photography and it's turning into art. Well, I don't think that that's necessarily the case. I mean, it's much more likely the ISS, for example, might be in front of the moon rather than little green men. But I think that it would be able to take account of that from reading what Samsung have said about this. It might or it might not. It stitches textures into blank blurry parts of the moon that do not exist in the original photo based on the fact that it, quote, knows, unquote, what the moon, quote, should, unquote, look like and will make it look that way if it doesn't. I think this really raises the question is like at some point somebody's cell phone camera photo is going to have been doctored by AI so much that it doesn't hold up in court as proof that this person was there at this time or whatever. Precisely. And it really then raises the question, where do we draw the line of what is touched up too much and not too much? Like the article says, if you dig down deep enough, the individual sensor that's processing this photo is like, 
is this pixel green or how, how green should this pixel be? And another part of the sensor is how red should this pixel be? And it, they start talking to each other about nearby cells. It's like, okay, if I saw some green here, but none of my neighbors saw any green at an individual pixel level, there's probably a noise reading. And we want to smooth out and get rid of some of that green. So even down at like the most basic level of how like a CMOS sensor takes a picture of a photo or makes incoming light into a photo, it's doctoring it as well. So how do we decide what is too doctored and what isn't? Because none of it is the same as exposing film, but even exposing film, like depending on the chemistry the film was made with, it will make it look different. I think part of the answer here, and and again, I'm going to go back to this whole moon thing. I think this is a very important distinction to make because whether you're talking about potential artifacts or effects of an analog film development process, or whether you're talking about the color interpolation, you know, and CMOS sensor raw data, you're still talking about a generic algorithm that's applied basically equally to all data based on the idea of making the data be more easily consumable by human eyes, as opposed to starting out saying, I know what the world should look like, and I am therefore going to make this image of the world look like my preconceived notions. That is a big step, and it is a problem that simple edge correction and blur reduction techniques really don't impose in the same way. Slippery slope's the wrong term, but it's all on a scale here, and it's hard to say where we should draw the line between what is just edge correction and what is just guessing. You know, how much AI is an okay amount of AI? I think a lot of the answer to that should be, particularly when you're talking in terms of, you know, the, the visual effects, any AI is pretty much too much AI if you can't say no thank you. I would be fine with it with any of this if there was just an option to click to say, no, I just want the raw, please don't do that stuff. That would be fine. But that's not consumer friendly. Well, it comes down to a question that shouldn't be a philosophical question, but now is. And that question is, what is a photo? Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. And Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. If a device isn't compliant, The user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero trust architecture, device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecure devices might be logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Collide is a simple device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. So visit collide.com slash 25A to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. Jim, you are sick of Ubuntu. That might be a bit of an overstatement, but I'm certainly unhappy about the directions that Canonical has been taking in Ubuntu for a while now. I have been a fanatical Ubuntu user, adherent, and cheerleader for 16 years now, since Feisty Fawn in 2007. And the original appeal of Ubuntu to me, I was a Debian user. I had tried all the major mainstream Linux distributions. and At that time, I was still largely a FreeBSD person, but Debian started winning me over to the Linux side of things. And then a friend was like, you should try Ubuntu. 
because Ubuntu is Debian with all the rough edges sawn off. And I was frankly quite dubious of it, but then I installed it on an old laptop and it was exactly what it had been cracked up to be. It was Debian, only I didn't need to spend six hours getting all the little niggling details set up. It just, everything worked out of the box. And I mean, everything worked out of the box. I found it tremendously less buggy than, you know, mainstream Windows operating system. As the years have gone by, that rock-solid lack of bugginess and being ready to go out of the box and not just going to stab you in the back one day, it feels like that has diminished year on year. First, it was the ephemeral releases, you know, the ones in between the LTSs. Those got to be significantly less trustworthy. And lately, the LTSs have felt less and less trustworthy as well, culminating with 2204. As we've covered several times on the show, 2204 has pushed snaps a lot more heavily than prior versions of Ubuntu have. In particular, it pushed snap packaging of every browser available on Ubuntu. In addition to that, I don't know what they've done, but anybody who works with server-grade hardware, it's pretty much all got onboard AST Lightspeed graphics, and that worked flawlessly up until... 2004. And I don't know if the actual breakpoint happened in one of the ephemerals between 2004 and 2204, but I can tell you right now, 22.04 is almost unusable on AST Lightspeed hardware. Which is pretty much every server that you can buy. Yes. It's Super Micro, it's HPE, it's Dell PowerEdge. I have never encountered server-grade hardware that did not have AST Lightspeed. Yeah, and the Asus server stuff and even the the ARM servers. Yeah, they all use the same chipset. And I can go from 20.04 LTS to 22.04 LTS on any server-grade hardware. And now I go from a completely usable desktop with no obvious problems of any kind to it is incredibly slow to update to the point that, you know, in a lot of cases, I'm having to drop the resolution like to 1024 by 768 just to be able to actually use the desktop without like watching the screen render. This should not make it into an LTS. You, you should not be shipping a long-term support release of a server-grade operating system that no server in the world will perform okay with. I get that the graphical desktop environment is the least important part of a server distribution. It is for me as well, but it is part of it. And like in particular, in my own servers, even though I may never or almost never see the the graphical desktop environment, my clients will. They'll walk back to the rack and want to do something like at the server. And if they're literally watching the dots show up one by one in the password typing bar three or four seconds after they type them, and then waiting for the initial screen to render of the actual desktop after the login, and like visibly painfully waiting for dialogues and in application windows to render on the desktop, like that's an enormous problem. How do you send that out the door? That sounds an awful lot like when on Linux After Dark, we did the nested virtualization challenge and we got four VMs in and it started to like draw stuff on the screen like some sort of computer from the 80s. That is exactly the perception. And to an untrained user, they just think, oh, well, this entire server is incredibly slow. And of course, that's not the case. It's limited to the graphics part of it. But how does that make it out the door? 
At this point, really the only thing that's keeping me particularly enamored of Ubuntu over Debian was Canonical's decision to really throw their hat in the ring with ZFS support and say, no, we're putting it right in the kernel and sue us if you don't like it. And I feel like I owe Canonical a debt for that. They did a lot for ZFS, and I continue to appreciate that, and I also appreciate the fact that that support is right there, but it's getting harder to keep me, folks. Meanwhile, Alan quietly laughs in FreeBSD. I've just never even considered installing X on a server. (laughs) If it's just for me, I might not either. But it comes in very handy to have a graphical interface available for like, for lack of a better word, normie IT support types, you know? Yep. People who are used to Windows Server, that has a GUI. Yeah. Although they did finally make a version of Windows that doesn't. Really? Yeah. They did, and I wouldn't advise trying to use it because almost immediately you're going to need the desktop. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there'll be people screaming at their headphones right now, why not something like Alma Linux, you know, one of the uh, RHEL clones? Why don't you go that side of the fence? For the same reason I didn't go RHEL back in the day instead of Debian. I don't think there's a whole lot of point in me just ticking off a bunch of things that I personally like or don't like. I'm not, I don't want to tell anybody you shouldn't use a RHEL clone or you know whatever distro you felt most comfortable with. When it comes down to it, I greatly prefer a distribution that's in the Debian family of distributions. That's mostly for apt package management, but also there's, there's a lot of decisions that that are made all the way upstream at the Debian level that roll down to almost all of the Debian-based distros that I broadly tend to agree with. So I like that better. That just, that's kind of where I want to be. I don't particularly want to be in the real world, so I'm not, unless I need to support it for a client who does want to be there, in which case I go with their preferences. In my world, it turns out I have to do all of them. There's a big chunk of customers that are using RHEL, a big chunk that use Ubuntu, and then the rest are all FreeBSD. And so I have to be able to operate in all three of those and maintain my comfort level in all of them. And then some weird university throws OmniOS at me. I have the exact same issue with just I have to be able to support whatever comes my way. But being able to support anything that comes my way doesn't mean I'm not going to have a preferred setup, you know, for things that I'm installing and I'm configuring and I'm doing for my own stuff, which I will say also that I'm fortunate enough that I usually get the chance to do that. You know, I may acquire a client that's all RHEL or Alma or OpenSUSE or whatever, but odds are pretty good if they're still my client, you know, five or six years later when it's time to do some kind of a major upgrade anyway, at that point, it's entirely possible that they'll just be like, this has been working really well and we'd like you to do things the way that you prefer, in which case I get to set them up to integrate the best into my management style and my yada, 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 yada. If Debian didn't exist, if Ubuntu was the root of that family of distributions, then sure, I, I might be looking at an, you know, an Alma or whatever, but Debian is there. So that's what I'm looking at. If and when it gets to the point that I can no longer deal with Canonical's decisions for Ubuntu's direction that directly harm me, <laughs> Debian's my escape route. I don't know. For me, it was a long, for a long time, if I had to have a Linux, it was Red Hat slash CentOS because I learned some of it in college and that knowledge always just worked. And it always just worked right through into CentOS 6, but then CentOS 7 happened and they pulled all the rugs out from underneath me. <laughs> and it's like, if I have to learn this all from scratch, I'm going to take Ubuntu because it's the thing that is more popular. And bonus, it meant all the servers could use ZFS as well. And it solved lots of other problems for me. One of these days, Alan, 
just one of these days. I thought about it before we even had the conversation, before I said it, and I was thinking about how I'm finally going to get it right. And then I just said it and wasn't even thinking about how to pronounce it. There is no Y at the beginning of Ubuntu. He pronounces it like an Ewok. Ubuntu. Yub-jub. Oh, no, no, no. Yub-jub. Like steel drums in the background. Princess Leia wandering around. It's the thought that counts, Alan. It's the thought that counts. So I had the thought and then quickly forgot it. Does that count? (laughs) Okay. This episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Nick writes, I'm putting in a point-of-sale system into a restaurant for the first time. And this system has its own router that needs a dedicated port on the ISP-provided modem. I also have additional Unify cameras and phones that also need to be installed on site. Is the solution as simple as requesting a modem from the ISP that has multiple Ethernet ports? One for the point-of-sale Cisco Meraki router and another port for the Unify Dream Machine Pro. Currently, I have no way to test this with my existing hardware and modems, so I'm wondering if you have any experience with business setups. So the first thing I would say is, it's not that this point-of-sale system needs a dedicated port to the ISP modem, it's that its instructions says that it needs a dedicated port to the modem. And I think the answer probably is a switch. You plug the modem into the switch, and all the things also into the switch, and they physically can't tell the difference. But we need to be cautious here, because we don't actually know what the point-of-sale system truly requires. And what we're hearing is a dedicated port might actually mean that uh, the Unify cameras and the POS system each need their own dedicated IP address from the ISP, which is an entirely separate story. And a switch won't necessarily help you with that. Like you need to talk to your ISP about that. Now, if the only thing was like you need a port, then a switch will be fine. Even if you got your ISP to give you a an upgraded version of their gateway device that had multiple Ethernet ports on it, you know what's going to be behind those? A switch. It's just it, the switch is built in to the modem itself versus an external switch you plug it into. But the only difference in that is just how many boxes you have sitting there. There's no real logical difference between the two. Yeah, like uh, to Jim's point, if the camera system wants to have an IP address so it can be reachable from the internet or something, that's something, but I, I doubt that's the case just because 
most INSPs either don't offer that as an option or, you know, it means you're getting a business class internet that costs a whole bunch more money and each IP address is very expensive. The whole world's not Canada, Alan. Every dodgy ass ISP, whatever down here from anybody gives you a public IP address that, yes, you can absolutely expose services on. The only thing you can't do is run email. Right. But they usually will not sell you more than one without a bunch of extra faff. Well, in the UK, you have to pay a bunch of money for that to be static. Yeah, it's usually like a $5 a month surcharge here if you want a static IP versus dynamic. Sometimes it can be about 30 here. It depends on provider, but typically it's it's like a $5 surcharge. Now, if you want an additional IP address, that's going to be wildly different rates depending on ISP. And I haven't had to ask for one in forever because I just don't do like public hosting directly out of, you know, a customer's on-prem anymore. Like if they need, if they need access to it remotely, then it's, it's usually going to be coming in, you know, from some route that punches out from the office rather than needing to punch into the office doing, you know, port forwarding or what have you. Exactly. Usually the solution is a wire guard out to a VPS somewhere that you renting with a static IP address and it gives you more control and yep. just not having to faff around with the ISP's device or the way they'll provision it for you. But the solution here might just be as simple as like a $50, $100 switch then. The solution almost certainly is just going to be any gigabit switch will do. It doesn't need to be smart. It doesn't need to be managed. It literally just needs to be a gigabit switch. If you don't need multiple public IP addresses, that'll fix you up. No problem. Right. Well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at joerest.com slash mastodon. If Elon hasn't unplugged too many racks, you can find me on Twitter at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.